blessed hope we have. Now we pray not seeing, then we will see face to face. And it will be a, a glorious thing. Theme today, praying for real from Luke 11. Uh, first section, just ask him. Dr. Lewis Ferry Chafer tells of a certain pastor who was in the habit of profound prayers, oftentimes resorting to words beyond the vocabulary of his simple flock. This went on week after week, much to the dismay and frustration of the congregation. At last, a wee Scottish woman in the choir ventured to take the matter in hand. On a given Sunday, as the minister was waxing his most eloquently verbose, the little woman reached across the curtain separating the choir from the pulpit. Taking a firm grasp on the coattail of the minister, she gave it a yank and was heard to whisper, Just call him Feather and ask him for something. Well, that's sort of what prayer boils down to at its most basic. We pour out our urgent needs to God based on the privileged access we have in Christ as his children. Yet it's much deeper than just a Santa list for more stuff. In today's passage, Jesus briefs his followers on one of the most precious aspects Christians enjoy spiritually, how to pray. Prayer as pattern. I don't know about you, but I'm a very routine-oriented person. Sometimes it drives my wife up the wall. To me, it keeps life orderly, unstressful, following the same basic pattern daily. Some people are very distractible, like a video I saw this week of a pack of greyhound dogs in a race following a white fluttering flag drawn along until suddenly a real rabbit showed up, darted across the racetrack, and all the dogs suddenly left the track in pursuit. I'm sure life with Jesus was never dull or boring, even though he did follow certain patterns. Prayer was a big part of his pattern, his routine. Early in Mark's account, we read, Mark 1.35, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. He made it a priority while it was still dark, before the day got busy. He also, Luke 5.16, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Note that little word, often. Even though he could have allowed all his precious time to be taken up with healing sickness, casting out unclean spirits, feeding thousands and teaching multitudes, Jesus would withdraw often to isolated locations so he could pray. It's how he got nourished spiritually. He cultivated time alone with his heavenly Father. So, it's not surprising this habit catches the interest of his followers prompting them to inquire more about it. Luke 11 begins, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. I wonder what made them want to learn to pray as Jesus took time to. Did they see how he was recharged by it? Could they tell he came back bolstered and refreshed by this time devoted to intimate conversation with God the Father? When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face was radiant from that time spent speaking with the Lord, Exodus 34:29. Maybe the disciples discerned something different about Jesus after these deliberate prayer encounters. 
Certainly it can help us emotionally when we've been able to pour out our stresses and concerns to the Almighty One who cares for us. What about our own prayer patterns? Is it a a got-to or a get-to? Is it just a matter of duty? Or do we come away invigorated spiritually such that a non-believer observing us might want some of what we've just been enjoying? I've been reading and rereading When the Body Says No by Dr. Gabor Mate. He's not a believer, but a lot, based on a lot of good research. About the impact stress and emotional burden can have on many diseases affecting our immune defenses. In one experiment, medical students were given a slight injury to their palate during exams when they were stressed, and at another time when they were on vacation. The injury healed significantly faster when they were on holiday than when they were stressed. Apparently, stress inhibits the release of certain compounds from white blood cells that are important for healing wounds. So, it could be that if prayer decreases our stress level because we've unburdened ourselves to God, it has a marked effect on our physical well-being. Prayer's priorities. Prayer, as Jesus outlines it, is much more than just a wish list, as if we were treating God like some magic genie in a bottle or a divine vending machine. It's not just asking for stuff. Prayer can be a means by which we are brought into tune with God's will for our lives, much as a a piano string begins to vibrate sympathetically in sync with a tuning fork nearby. You've probably heard the saying, prayer changes things. In fact, we had a little plaque hanging askew over our stairs when I lived in Blythe saying exactly that. Dr. Donald Barnhouse was an American pastor and author. Once he came to the pulpit and made a statement that stunned his congregation, he said, prayer changes nothing. You could have heard a pin drop. He was emphasizing, of course, God's sovereignty, that it's him, not us, that's in charge of everything. No puny human being, by uttering a few words in prayer, takes charge of events and changes them. That's got to be left up to God. There's one exception, though, as Chuck Swindoll points out. Prayer changes me. He says, when you and I pray, we change. And that is one of the major reasons prayer is such a therapy that counteracts anxiety. On another occasion, in the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded by Matthew, Jesus taught what we now call the Lord's Prayer. Here in Luke 11, the beloved physician renders a briefer version in response to the disciples' request for a primer on prayer. There are basically five elements, one for each finger on a hand. I love how Luke's version cuts away any frilliness, any flowery flourishes, and just has the brass tack. You may be heard of Abraham Maslow's 1943 vintage hierarchy of needs, sometimes a big triangle like this with five layers, physiological needs, safety needs, love and belonging needs, esteem needs, and up at the top, self-actualization needs. Five levels, and it's difficult to fulfill the higher ones if the more basic ones, like food and water and a place to live, are lacking. As we look at Jesus' prayer, we can see perhaps his own teaching on what our real priorities and needs are. Certainly, 
physiological needs are representative, represented. Give us each day our daily bread. That's pretty basic. But several things are different than what Maslow would have emphasized. Now let's review the five elements. Luke 11, 2 to 4. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. To your kingdom come. Three, give us each day our daily bread. Four, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Five, and lead us not into temptation. First, Father, hallowed be your name. Here is reflected our emotional need, our sense of identity. To address the Almighty as simply Father, Abba in Aramaic, would have been shocking to the pious Jews of Jesus' day. They would not even venture to pronounce God's name, substituting other titles instead when they read Scripture. But Jesus' forgiveness provided through the cross strips away that barrier of fear and formality, allowing us intimate access to the Sovereign One. Paul writes in Ephesians 3.12, In Him, Jesus, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. As Jesus underscores in 11.13, This is your Father in heaven. We are his children. He wants us to come to him freely, gladly, unreservedly. New Living Translation puts the next phrase, May your name be kept holy. But we come in Christ surrounded by love. God is not just a chum or buddy, someone we can presume upon or treat casually. He is the almighty, powerful sovereign, creator of the universe and judge of all flesh whose wrath against unrepentant sinners and Satan's hordes is unendurable. We come in awe, reverently, in wonder at God's wisdom and mystery, his vast power and eternal purposes. Knowing he is much bigger than us gives us security. We are safe, protected by him. We are given identity. We come to know who we are in Christ, God's beloved children, the saints he has chosen in election. Second, your kingdom come. Here we find purpose and significance. We are not just random molecules adrift and colliding in space driven by purposeless forces of nature. No, the Lord is guiding creation toward a culmination marked by the return of Jesus in glory and final judgment when people will be rewarded according to their deeds. What we do now will have lasting meaning then. The universe does not just fizzle out and wind down with a whimper, sucked dry by entropy. You matter in relation to God's good government of peace and righteousness and justice. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, Matthew 28, 18. And he has authorized you to act upon his great commission to make disciples and his great commandment to love as he loved us. There is meaning to existence in relation to God's coming kingdom and his current governance. E. Stanley Jones wrote, Prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God and cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from a boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me 
or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. Third, give us each day our daily bread. God has in mind our most basic physical needs. We are created physical beings. We need energy in order to operate, be that bread or other forms of food. Luke interestingly uses the present active imperative form of the verb as it might be translated, keep on giving. It's an ongoing daily dependence. This could be seen as parallel to Maslow's most fundamental level of human need. So in this way, Maslow overlaps with the Lord's Prayer. But let's press on to some others that Maslow overlooks. For forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Here we have the need for relationship and innocence, freedom from guilt. God is the divine creator and judge is the one we must finally answer to for our actions. He is the ultimate yardstick defining right and wrong, good and evil. Secular philosophy would have a problem right here, for if there is no moral law giver, how can there be any moral law? We need forgiveness for ourselves. He has hardwired humans, inasmuch as they are bearers of God's image, though fallen, the Creator has hardwired us with conscience, a sense of what's fair and unfair when, when others have hurt us or vice versa. Guilt is real. It's not a fabrication or some psychological fiction. When we hear of school shooters, it can't just be dismissed as someone dancing to their DNA or being a victim of their upbringing and environment. We are real moral agents and responsible for it. Guilt is real. We need forgiveness. Christ died on the cross as the perfect substitute, the God-man, making atonement for us when we commit our lives to him, receive him as Lord and Savior. But this does not just apply between us and God. It applies also between us and other people. The Bible is very definite about the fact that God will not forgive us if we do not forgive others. Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 illustrates exactly this point. When the king in the story claps the wicked, unforgiving servant in prison, Jesus observes, Matthew 18.35, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. We have relational needs, relationships founded on trust, glued with forgiveness when there's been disappointments and misunderstandings and broken promises and failures, as often happens. At the cross, we find grace to forgive others who've hurt us time and again, the same grace that we needed ourselves in our folly and rebellion against God. Five. And lead us not into temptation. New Living Translation puts this, Don't let us yield to temptation. God does not play the role of tempter. James 1.13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Sources of temptation include the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our flesh is that unregenerate part of us that inclines us away from God with unredeemed appetites. The world includes all around us that would prey upon us or take advantage of us, wooing us off track from living for God. So you're browsing online and wonder, how come Google popped up that ad for something I was searching for the other day? Or just talking about to someone? How did that friend suggestion pop up on Facebook when we just happened to cross paths recently? You are being followed. Regarding the internet, as has been said, If you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Your data and browsing habits are being mined constantly so the algorithms can plot how best to arrest your attention. Beware. And there's the devil with his associated cronies, the third or so of angels that have fallen and get their jollies from attempting to interfere with God's glory being manifest in his people and his church. Westerners are sometimes unconscious that we live and move in a spiritual environment, accompanied by spirit beings invisible to us. When you're in Christ, you need not fear them, but they exist. Some people who have lost loved ones may look over at a chair where they used to sit and suddenly see them there, but they vanish. Was it just imagination? It seems so real. Was it a hoax or a gift? Hebrews 12 talks about us being surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. We need God's protection in this spirit world with our feet of clay. A more accurate rendering of Jesus' idea here might be what he advised the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22:40. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. God, give us the vision to spot the traps and the strength to resist getting drawn in. Section, prayer that pesters. Jesus accents his teaching with a couple of illustrations that encourage us to pray boldly and fervently. In the first story, a person has a friend come for a visit, but there's nothing to eat, so goes pounding on the door of another friend requesting three loaves of bread. Now, in Middle East houses at the time, for those in the working class, there'd be just one big room where the whole family slept together. Sometimes these were on a raised area around the wall, with even farm animals indoors on a lower level. Helped with the heat in the winter probably, but not so much the smell. Anyway, so have to get up in the middle of the night could cause quite a stir. Luke 11:7, And the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Don't bother me. Go away, pest. Stop pestering me. You'll wake up the whole household. Well, but what's to be done if that needy person at the door keeps on banging? Jesus goes on to say that the friend will get up and get the bread for them if only because of the man's boldness. The word can mean importunity with a sense of urgency, audacity, earnestness, relentlessness. Jesus is saying that's what ought to characterize our praying. Bold, audacious prayers. Urgently, earnestly, not giving up. New Bible Commentary Revised calls it an 
unblushing persistence. Prayer's privilege. That's the case with a friend. What about someone even closer, a family member? What about the relationship between a father and their child? Jesus ratchets up the intimacy one more notch. Don't miss the little connecting word, so, at the start of verse 9. If God will respond to our audacious, relentless, bold pounding at the door, even more than a friend would respond to the bother of a midnight visitor in need, therefore, we can ask, seek, knock, with full assurance it will be given. We will find, the door will be opened from friend to father, 11 to 13. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, one would expect the saying to end with our Father giving good gifts to those who ask, as Matthew has it. Luke wants to emphasize the Holy Spirit is the absolute best gift we could possibly ask for. God's own presence right within our lives, the helper, paraclete, counselor introduced to the church at Pentecost. Jesus promised in John 7:37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Ask, seek, knock for the best God has to give. He loves you. He won't play a nasty trick on you and surprise you with a snake or scorpion instead. Section, tell it all. Why hold back? Anything you might try to hide God knows already. The 17th century Frenchman Francois Fenelon said this about prayer. Tell God all that is in your heart as one unloads one's heart, its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may sober them. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes that he may help you to conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved tastes for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you to yourself and others. If you thus pour out all your weaknesses, needs, troubles, there will be no lack of what to say. You'll never exhaust the subject. It is continually being renewed. End quote. Amen. May it be so. Today on this day of prayer for Camp Sunday, we're reminded that camp can be a place where the normal routines and human-flavored superstructure of daily living in our comfortable cocoons are removed. God's power and design evident in nature outdoors can prompt us to open up to him in new ways. We close with a video from Camp Mishawa about ways God's kingdom is at work through camping ministry, touching people's lives with his grace. 
Hello 